Good evening, listeners. It's January 28th, 2018, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lori Lutz. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here in Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can, find out all of, you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Susan Rowe. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yes, definitely. Thanks for being here. And Susan, do you just want to get started by telling us a little bit about your research and what you're doing here at OSU? Absolutely. I am a doctoral candidate in the environmental sciences program. I'm under the environmental education track. So I do interdisciplinary work on free choice learning, learning that happens outside the schools uh, when the learner has some degree of choice and control over their learning, with whom they want to learn, how, when. Um, particularly, my research is situated at Hatfield Mine Science Center, which you guys just heard about in <laughs> the announcement <laughs> before. Uh, and I do research on conservation conversations around live animal exhibits. So I'm interested to know what counts as conservation dialogue when people are interacting with live animals. Great. So you've started doing some of this research. Um, do you want to tell us about how you kind of did phase one and um, what, where you're going from there? Absolutely. So there's a lot of research out there that already talks about what counts as biological talk in live animal exhibits when people are touching and interacting with live animals. And then, um, can we get into examples of live animal exhibits? Absolutely. Uh, these would be animal encounters that are offered through museums, zoos and aquariums, where you can touch an octopus or touch tank exhibits, as we have at the Hartfield Science Center, where visitors can come in uh, and it's a naturalist-looking tide pool uh, representation where there's like sea stars and sea urchins and sea cucumbers and a variety of other animals that people can interact with and touch. That sounds way more fun than looking at pictures in a textbook. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's why we have lots of visas coming in. Uh, they're coming in for their opportunity to see and touch animals. that they, they don't have on a normal basis on a daily life unless you work in a marine environment or you live by the ocean. You don't get to see them very often. Mm -hmm. um, so we know a lot about what constitutes biological talk in those exhibits, but we don't know a lot what conservation conversations sound like in those exhibits. So my interest in particularly working with families, I recruited families that came in um, and um, interacted at the touch tank and I recorded the interactions in that discourse, the dialogue to listen later, uh, in order to pinpoint what parts of the exhibit and what parts of the experience were prompting conservation talk. Then we had some uh, semi-structure interviews and they built concept maps with me about what, what they understood conservation to be. So concept maps are a, a visible thinking routine where we can 
talk to the visitors about what they think counts as conservation. So anything goes. There's no organized structure. But basically, I ask them to put in a paper everything that came to mind what they think about conservation. So from those concept maps and interview data, I started to create a rubrics uh, with themes that came out of their conversations that were related to conservation. And that rubric is now being applied to a larger body of data from video that were recorded from additional families visiting the touch tank so that I can't have an idea whether those same teams reoccur or not. So I guess maybe we should take a step back here and, and um, just think about how zoos and aquariums and museums have really shifted from this display of animals in captivity that people are coming to see um, to really wanting to convey this message of, of conservation. And so by having live animal exhibits, the message and the mission of these um, institutions is to um, talk about con conservation and to have their visitors leave with that message. So is that what you're finding from these initial interviews? You're right. Absolutely. That is the mission, <laughs> uh, the mission of those institutions. And actually, the few research that has been done about that has um, increasing efforts to demonstrate the value of those exhibits in promoting conservation. However, seeing that is a little more complicated. Mm -hmm. And it just anecdotally speaking, and with my own data and my research, yeah, the families, they come in and they expect those kinds of institutions to have conservation messages and conservation ideas, but they don't necessarily recognize that in the live animal interaction. They don't recognize those opportunities as conservation building explicitly. So they want more than that. They want an extra step to be able to get from, hey, this is cool, this feels good, it's nice, what it eat? Well, what does it do, where does it live? Um, to, yeah, I'm thinking conservation, there needs to be a little more in there. And, and traditionally, it's my understanding that the research in this area is very much focused on knowledge gain and what people, what the visitors are, um, what they're learning in, in terms of facts about the animals and, and things like that. And, and so that is how these um, educational um, programs are being evaluated. But you're kind of going at this from a totally different angle. Absolutely. Yes. Um, traditionally, uh, not only live animal exhibits, but interactive exhibits and other exhibits in general, we know a lot about cognitive development and um, how to understand people learning. Uh, or at least we know methods that are designed to measure those specific outcomes. The zoos and aquariums research is slowly taking steps towards uh, investigating other aspects like empathy building. That's the general argument, right? If you interact with a live animal, you have a reaction, uh, an emotional reaction that can lead to empathy. So we're taking baby steps into the research and methods into trying to understand how empathy happens in those experiences. My particular interest was to go be even beyond that. Yeah, there's cognitive development, there's knowledge building, there's emotional and empathy, and psychology can help us understand that a lot. Uh, but what we leave in a mix is that, is that contextual understanding of the things that from other disciplines like philosophy, sociology, anthropology, history of environmental sciences that can offer insights on how people come to understand conservation, how they define conservation, and what are the values associated that they bring with them. So in my research, for example, 
the families that I talk to when I ask them about conservation, the examples and analogies that they give me are very much values-based. They name things like utilitarian values or spirituality or uh, purposeful, purposefulness. It's a variety of things that are related to their values in one way or another. Uh, when I talk to professionals in the field, they give me more articulated and more explicit definitions of conservation, but they also touch on the, those the same themes, the kind of same themes that we think about how people interact with animals and think in conservation as having all of this influence from history, from how we define nature and wilderness and how conservation came about. Uh, but yet our research efforts and our education efforts are values changing in nature. So this top-down approach and predictive ways of conveying to someone a message that you think are important without really open up the conversation to a vulnerable place where you're working with people where they are. Does make sense? So going back to Lori's idea, one of the ways that uh, these live animal exhibits work is by trying to convey information by making a really impactful experience because you're touching and they're telling you about the life cycle of this animal or the reproductive effects. But their idea is that if you know a lot about these animals, the knowledge gained will then produce conservation behavior. But what you're finding is that that there's a disconnect there. And through your interdisciplinary research where you're actually taking on pieces of philosophy, uh, like how, mm-hmm. how is that disconnect maybe going to be connected again? Like what, what are we missing? Okay, I'm not sure if I can answer that specific question, how can it be connected again, but I can definitely <laughs> address that aspect. Yes, knowledge is part of it, right? Knowledge, building knowledge and cognition, that expense of learning is part of the experience. Uh, but new looking just the knowledge is kind of a missed opportunity. <laughs> um, let, let me put it this way. Maybe it's easier if I give an example of myself. Right. Um, before I went and took those interdisciplinary approaches in class and read the literature to uh, have a more broader perception of my research question, I was trained as an environmental educator, as an environmental scientist. So I was going that direction. I'm going to evaluate how they get here, how they get to learn this, will help them to learn A and B, and how can we better improve their experience. Uh, but as I went and, and learned about the insights from other disciplines like environmental history and how people come to understand what wilderness is, what nature is, or how even the conservation movement came about. It offers insights uh, about what visitors bring in that we are not normally exploring. Like if you, there are families that come in and look at a fish and want to know uh, where it lives, what does it eat? Um, And then there are other families that come in and look at the same fish and they wonder whether it's edible, whether it tastes good. So this is just a simple example to show that there are aspects of history, cultural aspects, philosophical aspects of how people come to develop their values that are part of that conversation. And by concentrating just on knowledge building, we miss that opportunity to promote conversations that are actually reflective, that they can actually think about their own conservation values, whether they change it or not, but they have the chance to evaluate and listen to someone else's opinions. But that puts us in a vulnerable position as educators uh, developing programs because we've never done this before like this. What do we do when somebody brings in a spiritual position about con- about conservation, can we go there 
in that conversation? And if we do, what are the best ways to do so? How can we promote that conversation to actually lead to reflection about conservation? This seems to be, you know, like a very, it's a very challenging um, topic. It seems like um, whatever the answer is, it's going to be a very tailored experience for each individual visitor or, or family coming in and that um, will require the, the, the volunteers and educators there to really be able to engage with a diverse audience in order to um, get this message across in a more um, unique way mm -hmm. where it's um, something that'll impact each individual person and not just give them facts about mm -hmm. um, the animals. Absolutely. It would need to be an exchange of learning, right? We'll mm -hmm. learn just as more as the groups that we're talking to are learning. So it's more of a I don't know what's the perfect recipe for a values-based approach. I guess that's what we're going to embark in the future, doing more <laughs> research about that. Uh, but it has to do with allowing for this open, what I kind of calling free thinking in my research. You know, when you do writing, for those of you who have done writing classes or have gone to writing centers, have been introduced to the concept of free writing as a tool to actually produce writing on paper and express your, get the ideas out of your head and into paper, which is free writing. Um, writing everything that comes to head without hesitation that like you can revise later. So how can we create an analog of that in an experience? Which would do the same is taking what's on your head up into a visible place where educators can work with, right? So how can we produce a kind of a free thinking in that environment and world matters that we can better understand how that works with research. That sounds very difficult to do because then there's no script, right? There's no exactly. script that the educator is going to have. It's going to be very much on the fly, depending on the questions they're asked. They're going to have to be able to react and interpret those questions and understand what are the values underlying that question and how can I still answer that question even if you want to know if that fish is delicious or not. Exactly. <laughs> yes. It, 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 it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to do, I'm sure, but it's important to have those perspectives and being able to work with uh, the knowledge, the cultural background, the historical understanding that people bring with them when they think about conservation. I mean, if you think about the way that the conservation movement is started, right? Um, you think, of, I don't know if you heard of the, have, have read of it, before, but the Hatchahatchee conflict, which is the uh, valley uh, in the city, there was a Yosemite National Park in San Francisco. And then when the big earthquake um, and fires hit San Francisco, it devastated the town. So the city proposed to, to turn Hatchahatchee Valley, which was in the national park, into a um, dam. And then for the first time in American history, <laughs> We have this conscious popular debate between what's more important, civilization or wilderness. And then the, the way that people understand wilderness or wilderness was at the time was heavily influential into that debate. Those aspects of history and philosophy of how people to understand what nature is and what wilderness is or how do they value that relationship with them are pretty much influenced by all of those aspects. And they bring those with them to the visitor center. So it's a disservice not, not to open the conversation to a reflective dialogue that can actually potentially 
lead to conservation or more conservation awareness and change in behavior. Well, I guess it sounds like we need to know a little bit more about the history of the visitors that are coming. And we would like to know more about the history of the people that we're interviewing. So mm-hmm. for those of you just joining in, this is Inspiration Dissemination. We're on every Sunday at 7. And today we're lucky to be joined by Susan Rowe. And uh, Susan, you have a long career in education in general. So uh, take us back a little bit into how you originally got into your love for marine sciences. Yes, um, I've answered that question before, and I always go back to my childhood, (laughs) (laughs) right? I'm Brazilian, so I grew up in the Atlantic Ocean in Brazil, where it's warm and you can actually swim in. Um, And um, when my mom told told me and my brothers to go out and play, she meant outside in the ocean. So we spent tons of time outside in the ocean exploring, and and that has a lot to do with my desire to go into my undergraduates and do biology, and that's that's my degree as an undergrad in Brazil. I did biology. When I was there, I was I worked for a coral reef lab, which I loved, absolutely loved. I'm still connected to my former advisor and um, colleagues there. Um, but I was divided in between the research. I loved the diving part and collecting data on corals in the ocean. But I also love my extension appointment uh, to do education programs with people at tide pools in groups at tide pools. And I decided that I love that part better than I did <laughs> the actual uh, uh, natural science research. So I morphed into the social sciences and education and environmental education. And since then, I graduated at Iowa State with my master's in animal ecology and did research on environmental literacy. And after graduating there, I've worked in many venues in Iowa, in the Midwest, and here in Oregon, include the Hatfield Marine Science Center as a marine educator and science educator. I had no desire to come back to do a doctoral degree (laughs) at that point. (laughs) Um, But the more I taught marine sciences and marine education, the more I was interested in being better at it and understanding through research what would actually improve, improve the programs and what are the kinds of knowledge that we need to to grow in, in, in order to create, uh, think critically. Um, so I wanted to get a, a, a position in an informal setting like a zoo or an aquarium as an educator, uh, a director, a programs director, one that would allow me to do some research and also teach. Uh, and for that, I was told I needed to have a doctoral degree. <laughs> so I heard about the free choice learning program here at OSU and how I could interdisciplinary do my environmental sciences focus, marine focus, and still do the free choice learning. Um, and that's how I end up in the College of Education uh, with my advisor, Dr. Lynn Durkin, um, and mending that environmental science component of my identity with learning more about learning theories how do people learn uh, in, in order to better contribute to the field? So when I think about that, and I think oh, my whole education in environmental sciences, giving an example, John Moore, you've heard of John Moore, right? Yeah. A hero mm-hmm. <laughs> for environmentalists. So my environmental science education um, gave me exactly that notion. John Moore is a hero, Right. Once I branched out into my college and my doctoral degree, which I value very much now, the freedom to have being able to develop the interdisciplinary scope is that I'm now looking into historical perspectives like, well, maybe this historian suggesting that Jim, you was not just a nature lover, 
he maybe didn't want to get involved with the political problems that were happening at the time. At the same time, for for those that don't know, right. John Muir is pretty much the epitome of, of keep wilderness as, as it, it is. Uh, you know, don't touch Hetch Hetchy. Jeez. Like this is like the perfect example of like the the naturalist, naturalist, naturalist. kind of the originator of 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 this idea. But at the same time that he was going through a lot of these philosophies, there was a lot, a lot of, of turmoil. turmoil. <laughs> a lot of turmoil, and why he was trying to establish that view of wilderness and nature is pristine Subai is a place that we can go and have some spiritual renewal and solitude, all of, and and solitude. All of these other things are happening in the world. So there are some historical perspectives and papers that I've read. They're like, Oh, did you really love the nature that much? I mean, I believe he did. I mean, nobody would write about nature that way if it, <laughs> they didn't. Uh, but it's true that his writings does not incorporate things like segregation, or things that are part of that debate that were happening at the time. So for the first time, when I'm taking these interdisciplinary views on the relationship between nature and humans, I'm thinking farther about those things. They're not just accepting the truth that this happened this way and these people did this. So I valued at that point the exercise of being in graduate school and being able to read and think and develop that scholarly uh, identity in me that is not only concerned with um, being a good researcher, but it's also concerned with being a good scholar and uh, looking outside my field uh, to better inform my research questions. I wonder if you could take me back to uh, when you were first doing the science outreach programs and uh, because that's where you said that you were doing some research and then some science outreach and you decided I really like the science outreach. So looking where you are now where you're helping to develop these kinds of science outreach programs and ways to make a larger impact. Was there something at, at that first experience that you had that you said, man, I think if we presented the information this way, they would remember it better, or I wish we could do it this way? Is there something that uh, back then maybe you realized that kind of stayed in the subconscious until now? Yes, absolutely. And that's an underlying of all the positions I've had so far, which is not the pedag- not only the pedagogical content as I learned to be a science teacher. I was a science teacher in Brazil for a while in the classroom. But the world of environmental education and interpretation, which pretty much teaches tools of how to make information relevant, motivating, engaging to audience. Right. And we know how to do that very well as environmental educators, interpreters, naturalists in national parks. They're trained to do that. They got certificates to do that on the methodologies and the insights from the field that makes for a good engagement experience with visitors. So, but yeah, to me, yeah, I'm learning how to do this. I'm doing it. I can see it happen on the ground with people, but there's something more about this that seemed disconnect. And that's like, yeah, we use all the science data and we use all the strategies and tools that we know work to engage people in these conversations and education. So there is that connect. But I think at that point I was feeling the need to learn how to to talk to people holistically. That is not just a, not just a recipe to pass content and help them learning about something. But I guess the question was learning how to actually have a dialogue with people and that requires insights in reading and growing scholarly to understand those historical, philosophical, sociological aspects that people bring with them when they think about issues 
environmental issues. They needed more than my ability to know how to convey a message. So I wanted to embark on that when my research and trying to give some baby steps into understanding that a little better. This sounds like one heck of a conundrum, right? As yeah. as like a as like a science communicator, there are certain ways that you can, you know, break out, break into the empathy portion of someone's mind and catch their attention to get them to listen and then you can tell them, you know, uh, all these, you know, interesting scientific and biological facts about this organism. But does that really you're not really providing a dialogue and it's much easier for a teacher to do the former and much harder to do the latter, which is creating a dialogue that is free form. No one knows where it's going, but then you really allow for someone's cultural background to come through and ask the questions they really want. Exactly. It's almost like as they are in a graduate writing center, think about tutoring instead of teaching, right? Tutoring is a whole new, a whole different thing than teaching. So how can we make that analogy with tutoring in a museum? I mean, we can't blame educators for that either. I mean, we also don't have a culture at the moment that would be supportive and given the structure for us to, yeah, go on and have a conversation with someone about their spiritual beliefs. That wouldn't be something that would be seen very well. Yeah, which, which, which learning <laughs> objectives are you satisfying by this conversation? Absolutely. I People, can imagine the school administrator. Yeah. <laughs> they want to see results. They want to see impacts. They want to see the traditional measurable outcomes. So in a way, uh, what I'm being audacious here talking and, and trying to move forward in my research is to kind of suggest that we need to shift a little bit uh, paradigmatic ways of doing conservation education research and doing programs in order to incorporate some of those, um, at least move towards incorporating some of those aspects that are important to people that actually shape what they think about conservation. This just has me thinking, you know, in the, in the sciences, we often, you know, have this wall, I feel, between like, these are the facts and then these are our Values and I mean those are definitely like intermingled, but I think it's like you know when we're when we're talking about our sciences, it's like facts, facts, facts. This is a research that supports that, you know, and and this is like totally like crashing down <laughs> that wall and being like, no, we we really need to combine these two different areas because they are interlinked, whether we try to keep them separate or not. Not, and if you look back in history. At uh, the beginning of times when we start to think about nature and what nature is, those things were not separate at all. Our understanding of wilderness started, I mean, if you think about the U.S. in particularly, uh, uh, let's narrow that scope, in a time of expansion, at first nature was seen as something um, chaotic, dangerous, dark, right? They don't know. It's dark, mm-hmm. it's danger, it needs to be conquered, Right. Then we yeah. move towards the different views, romantic views of nature. Like, no, nature is beautiful. It's a place where we can renew, but we still need to conquer the land and make it into beautiful pastures and productive <laughs> land. So we morph, as if you can see, I don't know, we have time to talk about through all of this, but we morph <laughs> from looking at nature as uh, dangerous, dark, problematic to, yeah, it's okay as long as we can conquer it and make it productive in this beautiful pasture lands to know John Muir's idea nature is sublime and picturesque it has intrinsic value where you take only pictures and leave only footprints <laughs> only footprints 
And then, but but society goes along with all of those ideas. And when we start to want to manage the land and create national parks, then we go morph into a more uh, systematic view of nature that's not just about particular species. So in that morphing of thinking about what nature is, what wilderness is, and how the conservation movement can about all of those political and historical facts are part of it. And we're part of that in the beginning. In the beginning, it was okay, right, to claim religious beliefs as a reason to protect nature. That's what John Muir did. It was a Christian, Christianity perception of we go to nature because we can renew our spirit now so it's a divine place. And now, it, it, like Laurie said, it's not well viewed upon us if we're going to intermingle those discourses into in, an environmental education program. Well, Susan, it sounds like the interdisciplinary program here that we have at OSU is really providing a heck of a foundation to ask these questions that otherwise would stay in individual fields. And we wouldn't really be able to get nearly as as far as, as we have today. So, so thank you for coming on the show. Uh, we have two traditions that we typically have. And the first is we ask you for some advice. So what is your advice and who is it for? Okay, I decided... The since I can speak for myself and I'm embracing my graduate student identity, I think I'll speak to other graduate students. <laughs> <laughs> um, as you said yourself, I would not have um, gone into this pathway of research had I not been um, exposed to the interdisciplinary approach, which I know most students do not have the same opportunities because they're programs are much more rigid and have many more requirements than my interdisciplinary program had. Um, so I was fortunate to be able to do this and, and be curious enough to actually take that route. So my advice for graduate students is that one part of the journey in graduate school for me was understanding how to be a good researcher, right? Is understanding what makes for quality work, how, what is the expectation, the requirements of academic writing, all of the kinds of things that makes you be recognized as a good researcher. That's one part of it. The other part of it, which is much more complex, and it's up to us to figure it out how to do it, it's how we become good scholars, right? When I started my graduate program, I wanted to graduate, get a diploma, and go work in a museum in a zoo. And now I'm not so sure that's what I want to do. I like the exercise of thinking. I like to go out of my comfort zone and learn more about these things. So I think I may just want to become an academic. So I would encourage graduate students to go out, get out of a comfort zone, um, and um, embark in interdisciplinary work, and ask, have people from other disciplines ask questions about your work, and um, raise issues, uh, challenge yourself, to learn more about things and be committed to scholarship. For me, a doctoral degree now is not just a diploma to be able to go out and get a good job, but it's also something that tells me I'm committed to scholarship, and that's more than doing good research. That's being able to think, to philosophize, right, to contribute in that way. I, I think that's so great. And I think, you know, this 
it's so easy for us as graduate students, I think, to get in our own little bubbles in our departments. And one thing um, you've done a great job of doing through your interdisciplinary program and what we try to do here at Inspiration Dissemination is really um, listen to other graduate students and, you know, gain these other perspectives and and um, get out of that box or out of our comfort zones and sort of explore these um, other ideas that maybe we wouldn't yeah. have come across in our own um, program even. so Absolutely. It doesn't help with the imposter syndrome sometimes. Yes. <laughs> but somewhere along the way, believe me, you find your passion. I guess, I guess what I want to say is that is the exercise of doing that where I found my passion and where I wanted to contribute with those research questions. So I would just encourage you to get out there and get yourself into places you didn't think you would be and um, learn with others. Great. So we have another tradition, and this is where we ask our guests to choose a song and tell us um, why you chose the song and what the song is. Okay. I chose the Big Yellow Taxi, right? I guess you're going to play when you're done. Uh Um, I chose that, and when you hear the song, you're going to understand why I'm saying this. Um, not only because I like Counting Crows, even though it's just a version of it. <laughs> they didn't write it. <laughs> they didn't write it. But I like the melody. It makes me dance. But it has clearly has a conservation message, uh, right? We paved paradise to put up a parking lot. Um, so there is a, a, a clear conservation message. But to me, but the title is The Big Yellow Taxi. So to me, it was a sweet example that brings up this ambivalence um, of views and ideas, culture versus civilization, anthropomorphism versus non-anthropomorphism. So the lyrics, they use this pay paradise, nature lost example to talk about love lost, which is a human anthropomorphic thing. And if you think about it, the title is actually the big yellow taxi. It's not paved paradise. Uh, so to me, it was a sweet example of this conflict between what it is to be human, what it is to value nature, and how some of the philosophers talk about we can't ex- escape the human framework of existence. So can we work with that and flourish in different ways as humans? So that maybe now, in the past, flourishing means paving paradises to build parking lots. But <laughs> today, maybe flourish would mean something else that doesn't include destroying paradise so um so i thought it was a sweet example of putting out that as ambivalent views of um the values of humans versus values of nature and civilization so yeah i i agree this song beautifully um represents your research in in what you're doing um and I must admit that I did not realize Big Yellow Taxi was the name of this song <laughs> <laughs> until, until um, you sent it to me earlier this week. So, all right. Thank you so much, Susan, for being here. And um, I hope everyone enjoyed the show and hearing more about your research. Thank you so much for having me. That was a blast. Yeah. Thank you. Paradise and put up a parking lot. We're the pink hotel of.